Our first lesson today, again, we're under the theme of managing finite resources today as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, Our first lesson is from Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 28. And Jesus is teaching here really about calculating the cost of discipleship. But implicit in this lesson is the basic idea that wise, faithful, godly people will plan. We'll plan and know the resources that God has given us and steward them accordingly. So we read from Luke 14, beginning with verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. This is God's word. Our teaching today comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're looking at verses 6 through 19. Again, our theme is managing finite resources. And here, the Apostle Paul says to his young ministry pupil, Timothy, the following. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and in many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God... Flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. And finally, he concludes, command those, Timothy, who are rich in this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This is God's word. We are in the last week of 1 Timothy. So if you've been here at all in the last month or so, we're working our way through a series on 1 and 2 Timothy that, uh, again, subtitle for it is Pragmatism for Young Ministers. But chapter 6 is the last chapter in 1 Timothy. And just so that we're all on the same page, Timothy was a younger ministry companion and sort of understudy, a pupil of the Apostle Paul. 
And by this point, he had been appointed to the, be the bishop of the church in Ephesus, the place where the letter to the Ephesians was written. And this is a letter from a spiritual mentor trying to encourage his, his ministry pupil, his ministry companion, to be strong to carry out his ministry. And here's what we've looked at in the prior weeks. The summary goes a little bit like this. Uh, in 1 Timothy 1, we saw the Apostle Paul give something of a definition of sin that might be a little bit better even than many of our definitions of just bad behavior or something like that. And by that categorization, he says, and I am the worst of sinners. In 1 Timothy 2, he gives some instructions on God's design for our worship in life, and he even offers a warning against what happens when we defy God's design. In 1 Timothy 3, he gives qualifications for spiritual leaders. In 1 Timothy 4, we get that famous phrase where he says, don't let anybody look down on you because you are young. In other words, people don't get spiritually mature by getting older. People get spiritually mature by spiritual disciplines and spiritual character, repentance, and experiences of grace. Uh, and in 1 Timothy 5, what we heard last week was about our relationships, having gracious, appropriate relationships, especially, he said, as it relates to the elderly amongst us. So to summarize it even further, you could put it like this. It's personal humility. It's God's design for worship. It's leadership qualifications, spiritual maturity, and it's healthy relationships. This is, to put it differently, it is textbook spiritual mentoring. Okay? It's textbook spiritual mentoring. And the final of his points and the final of the chapters in 1 Timothy 6, the big idea of this chapter is the Apostle Paul is encouraging Timothy to give a good profession of faith. Now, maybe you caught this. A couple times he says this. In verse 12, he said, Timothy, like upon your conversion, you gave a good public testimony of your faith. That was verse 12. In verse 13, he talks about Jesus giving a good public testimony of his faith before the Pontius Pilate. Uh, in the opening verses, verses 7 through 10, he talks about the dangers of money, the spiritual dangers of money. And in verses 17 through 19, he talks about how Timothy is to command those who are rich in this present world to be rich in good deeds and generous. You put it all together, you know what this means? The big idea? The way you manage your money in this world is the most tangible profession of faith that you make. Uh, in other words, like talk is kind of cheap. If I really want to know what you believe, don't just tell me what you believe. Show me your bank account, your internet history, and your schedule. Those are what you really care about. That's what you really believe, truly, right? You know that. What you do with your money in this world is your most tangible profession of faith. Your relationship with uh, stuff in this world says everything about what you believe your relationship with God and stuff in the next life is going to be, okay? So our teaching, we're going to break it into these three points here today. The, the larger social point of consuming and consumption leading to misery. Uh, a second two points he makes in here about commanding generosity and experiencing contentment. And finally, a point about grabbing your gift of eternal life. So consuming misery, commanding generosity and experiencing contentment, and grabbing your gift of eternal life, okay? First of all, consuming misery. If you were here last week, you might have heard that Aiden and I were celebrating our anniversary last week. Thank you for uh, the well wishes. And if you, you might also remember last week, it was like 100 degrees outside. So we were going to celebrate by doing something inside. Uh, we both like very much going to movies. That's always been part of our, our like dating life. And uh, so we decided we were going to go to the movies. Unfortunately for us, there was nothing that we actually wanted to see. So we landed uh, on a movie that nobody wanted to see. Uh, and if you don't know this, I'm actually a little bit of a movie snob. Uh, I've paid, I 
almost never watch anything unless it hits. There's these things called Metacritic, which is like a synthesis of a bunch of different critical reviews. Metacritic, IMDb, unless it hits certain thresholds and ratings, like I won't watch it. Uh, actually, I found out that the Barbie movie has got very good reviews, weirdly. Uh, it was way better than it had any right being, frankly. But uh, one of the things is since the net 90s or so, since the movie Toy Story first came out, Hollywood has been producing a slew of movies about childhood toys that teach us how these childhood toys shape our view of how the world works in the most formative and impressionable of years. Uh, and the Barbie movie was no different. In fact, some of the, like, it had satirical themes attached to it. So, for instance, it talked about, you know, the challenges of being a woman in the modern world. It had a very honest look at how the ideas attached to, like, Barbie have been both to women for the past couple of generations have been both kind of inspiring and tyrannizing to many women. But for our purposes today, one of the most important themes, and the reason I bring it up, is one of the major themes of it was about how consumerism shapes us. What you consume in life absolutely shapes you, very often on an like, unconscious level. In fact, the Atlantic's review of, I read a lot of movie reviews too, and this review said, Barbie never descends into a cheap girls versus boys final showdown. It just, this is a great line, it reckons with the different ways self-image gets sold to us. The weary, willing consumer, even as the world grows savvier and more cynical, it reckons with the different ways self-image gets sold to us. The weary, willing consumer. You know the first thing I thought of when I read that? Like, man, that sounds a lot like what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Where you put your money, that is absolutely where you find your self-image. There's a legendary Wall Street banker many years ago in the early 20th century by the name of Paul Majeur, who was part of the Lehman Group. And I've seen this quote attributed to him many different times about what he and Wall Street and Madison Avenue believed about the consumer, which shaped America's 20th century. He said this, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old things have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. And therefore, through a combination of greed and psychologically informed marketing, the modern world leveraged certain practices of things like, uh, this is a new term to me, planned obsolescence. Have you ever heard of that before? Planned obsolescence. They plan for things to become obsolete. So this is exactly what Apple does with iPhones. This is exactly what Nike does with the new season of Air Jordans. They are planning that even though your thing has a lot of good usage still left in it, you are going to be left behind if you don't get the next one, right? It is, uh, it is by the way, somebody last night was wearing those exact shoes and that came up to me afterwards. Thank you, Pastor, for that. It was very helpful. You called me out. And it, the thing is, it's not about the shoes and it's not about the newest iPhone. It's about the need to have those things or you think you're not well, right? Uh, what, how, why do we do it? Because we are manipulated in human fear of being left behind or the naive belief that something new is going to solve all of your problems in life or at least give you some sort of elevated and advantaged status. An author by the name of John Mark Comer uh, wrote a book, I've referenced this a couple times, called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And one of the things that he says in it is that we are sort of trained and educated to believe that we are these rational, autonomous people, that we are the product of who our, what our choices are, you know? That's largely flattery, 
We're, in other words, we're not educated in that makes us rational, autonomous creatures. We're flattered into thinking we are rational, autonomous creatures. And he says, the fact of the matter is the evidence suggests we're kind of suckers for advertising. And it's the exact same kind of advertising that was used, it was technically called propaganda in Nazi Germany. Here's, here's what he says. Advertising as we know it today started not on Madison Avenue, but in another city, Berlin, with another group of power brokers, the Nazis. They took the ideas of an Austrian psychotherapist named Freud, then who was unknown in America, and used them to manipulate the masses. Freud was one of the first modern thinkers to point out that human beings aren't nearly as rational or autonomous as we like to think. We constantly make irrational decisions based on what he referred to as, Freud called this, unconscious drives. By the way, the way he describes it, it's almost exactly the way the New Testament describes the concept of the flesh. We are far more emotionally tricked and desire-driven than we care to admit. One step further, even more interesting, Sigmund Freud, the father of modern psychology, his nephew, a lesser-known guy by the name of Edward Bernays, is the father of American advertising and public relations. Uh, he was a master at fanning the flames of want and desire and fear in modern advertising. So basically, a lot of what modern advertising is, is it just lies to us, but we buy it anyways. We buy the lie. We, buy it. we think it's going to deliver what it says it's going to deliver. And this is part of the reason, that lack of living in reality. It's part of the reason why today the average American is 10 times more likely. There are 10 times as many people in America today who are non-incident-based depressed. In other words, they're depressed, but not because they lost a loved one or because somebody broke up with them. Their uh, non-incident-based depression is 10 times more likely today than it was 50 years ago. Now, I'll be the first to admit that depression is this complicated, multifaceted thing, but what is undeniable is that we have more of everything today except happiness. We have more of everything except happiness. And that has to convict us that more stuff, new stuff, next-gen stuff is not nearly as helpful as the 30-second advertisements tell us that it's going to be, okay? Admittedly, I actually think younger generations are starting to see the dangers of excessive consumption in ways that, you know, maybe I didn't. Uh, people half my age are, are a little bit more in tune to that. In the last decade, there's been certain, like, interesting societal trends. So if you've ever heard of, maybe you haven't heard of these, Marie Kondo's decluttering techniques for your home, uh, Generation Z largely canceled the store called Abercrombie & Fitch, which was leveraging exclusivity because of high-priced clothing. Uh, tiny homes. Americans are fascinated with tiny homes today. All of this seems to suggest we're pushing back against excessive consumption a little bit. But the, the danger in just acknowledging societal trends is societal trends always miss what the underlying spiritual current attached to those trends are. And to put it a little bit differently, excessive consumption isn't primarily wrong because it creates oppressive class systems or because it threatens to harm the planet or because it makes us sad, even though I think, I believe all those things are true. Excessive consumption is primarily wrong because it indicates that we're trying to squeeze out of the created things in this world what only a creator God himself can actually deliver to us. Why do we believe it then? Because money has the power to foster self-deception. Isn't that exactly what the Apostle Paul says in verses 9 and 10? He says it's a trap. We're deceived. It's false advertising. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
And some people eager for money have even wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. My favorite biblical illustrations of the power of money to uh, create self-deception is the story of the rich man and poor Lazarus. I know a lot of you have heard that story before, but you know what the opening line is? The opening line says, it's, it's Luke 16, there was a man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. So he did, he did have the newest Jordans and he did have the newest iPhone because he always had to have the best stuff. He lived in luxury every day. We're also told that at the gate surrounding his mansion is this poor man named Lazarus, a beggar who's crying out for help every day. And they both die because that's what happens to you whether you're rich or you're poor, you die, okay? And Lazarus goes to heaven and the rich man goes to poor. And in an interesting twist in the story, what Jesus teaches is that at one point, the rich man in agony in the fires of hell looks up. Somehow he sees Father Abraham, the father of the Jews. And you know what he says to him? See if you catch the delusion in this. He says, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. It's easy to miss at first glance. Do you see what the, the delusion is? The rich guy still thinks Lazarus is beneath him. His whole life, he thought he was better than Lazarus. The dude's in hell and he's still trying to order Lazarus around. Why is he so delusional? Because money has the power to create that kind of self-deception. If you don't fight it, money will invariably blind you, burn you, and turn you into something contemptible. And there's only one way to fight against it. It's me the second point. Commanding generosity and experiencing contentment. We'll take them in actually the reverse order. So experiencing contentment. In verses six through eight, the apostle Paul says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, and the word for clothing there is actually a word just for covering, so anything that shelters us, so a, a roof over your head, uh, clothing to cover your naked body, food to sustain you, if we have the basics, we will be content with that. The logic is pretty straightforward. You came into this world and you were holding nothing. And when you leave this world, regardless of if you have something in your hand, you're not taking it with you. What Paul is teaching is it's the logic of an eternal perspective. And to the degree that you believe that your literal hands are going to be filled with blessings from God in eternity, to that degree, you will be able to let go of temporal blessings in this lifetime so that they would be a blessing to others. And I also want to be very clear about this. It's not that material things are bad. Uh, there are a lot of religious people who have taught that over the years. In ancient uh, religions, Gnosticism and asceticism, in certain Eastern religions, they talk that material things are bad. Today, some uh, minimalists and naturalists and Marxists you got to be very careful not to describe material things in and of themselves as evil. Or to put it a different way, the appropriate response when God gives you material blessing is gratitude, not guilt. Right? Here's the catch, though. Your brains, our brains, can easily be tricked into not understanding what the word need actually means. And for that matter, our hearts can be deceived into thinking that created things can give us what only a creator God can actually give us. So, when Paul says, we're going to be content, if we get our basic needs provided for, we are going to be content. What he's saying is, I guarantee God is going to give you everything, plenty of what you need to do whatever he has sent you into this world. Whatever reason you're on this planet here today for this little temporal time we have, he's going to give you everything you need to accomplish that. He doesn't say there's going to be more than that in this lifetime, but he will guarantee to give you that. The problem for 21st century Americans tends to be we don't have, we have wild definitions of the word need and we have wild definitions of the word rich. Do you know 
by the way, what percentage of, so like the richest 1% in all of the world. Do you know how much uh, America makes up the richest 1% in the entire world? What percentage of that 1% are Americans? Of the wealthiest people on planet Earth, half of them are Americans. In the wealthiest period in world history, in the wealthiest 1%, Americans make up half of that. And before you think that that wealthiest 1% is, that's because we have a lot of professional athletes and actors and doctors and lawyers. You know what it takes to get into the wealthiest 1% in the world today? $34,000 a year. Every person who's sitting in this room is wildly beyond the basic needs of the people in the ancient impoverished Mediterranean world. We are wildly blessed beyond imagination in ways that previously people would have thought completely unthinkable. And therefore, when the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, so command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, but to put their hope, or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. See, he's not anti-material. He says you can enjoy it and you should enjoy it. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. When he says that, he's not talking about the professional athletes and the CEOs that are in Timothy's congregation. He's talking about people like us who not only have their basic survival needs met, but actually have been given blessing on top of our basic survival needs. There's a famous uh, Anglican minister, hymn writer, wrote Amazing Grace, John Newton, who's also a famous abolitionist. A bunch of the letters that he wrote in his lifetime have been preserved and put in collections and published. In one of his books of uh, published letters, one of the letters is to a young minister. The young minister had clearly written him, John Newton, a letter. And he said, you know, I just got married. Should, I want some advice. Should I continue with my practice that I lived in, did in my bachelor life where I gave away a large portion of my income to people in need in the world? John Newton wrote him back and he said, yes, keep being very generous, trust God, live very modestly, etc." But in the course of like the eight paragraphs of that letter, he says some interesting things that have stuck with me for a long time. One of the things that he says is he warns against using prudence, wisdom, as an excuse for self-love and unbelief. It is not hard to make excuses not to be generous with people, you know? Like, well, they should work harder, or it's somebody else's job, or I have a lot of my own needs, or they're just going to squander it, or it's not at all hard to come up with reasons to not be generous. He says, don't use prudence as an excuse for what is actually self-love or unbelief. And then he goes on at one point and he explains that you should divide everything in your life into three categories. He says, uh, there's needs and there's conveniences and there's luxuries. Needs, conveniences, luxuries. And then he says this, He says, for a clear conscience, give a penny to the poor for every penny you spend above living at a barely decent standard. It's one of those sentences I wish I had never read before uh, because I get the sense that he is both right and it's very convicting. To be fair, by the end of the letter, he says, this is my opinion and I'm not trying to bind anyone's consciences. But you know what John Newton is doing for that young minister? He's doing the exact same thing that the Apostle Paul is doing for Timothy. He is commanding those who are rich in this present world to be generous sharing and rich in good deeds. Recognize the unfathomable grace of God. Recognize the unthinkable riches that are coming to you in the paradise of of heaven. Be totally sober in this lifetime about what the word need actually means. Lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. And then make a bold profession of your faith before the watching world, not just in what you say, but in your eye-popping generosity. Transparently, 
And practically, I have not yet gotten to the point of adopting Newton's penny for penny uh, principle. What I will say, Adrian and I regularly do talk about our finances and what, we, what God moves us to give away. Um, we are well aware, we live in 2023 in the richest civilization in human history. We both work, we have no kids. We are ridiculously rich. We are ridiculously rich. Uh, Adrian actually taught me in my early 20s to tithe. I wasn't giving anything at that point, and I was blessed because of it, and I was humbled because of it, and I've been blessed ever since. Um, but every year, we wrestle with, you know, here's what our finances is, here's how God has blessed us, here's the time and place that he had us born into. It's, it's ridiculous. And so what we do every year is we, we start at that, you know, as kind of a baseline. We start at that 10% and say, like, every year since we've been doing that, since we've been married, we've talked about this, we've prayed about this, and the number goes up, and we realize that God not only basically provides for all of our needs, but he gives us so much on top of it that we're like, we, have to, we, we would have to give away more. We desire to grow in what the Apostle Paul refers to as the grace of giving, which he talks about in 2 Corinthians 8. And by God's grace, the numbers go up and we prayerfully come to a conclusion that we plan to give away in the coming year. And that, by the way, because we do that, then when people come and ask and have needs, which, I just, let me just be real honest about this. I'm a pastor of a church in a fairly large city. People come with needs. I, I don't want to overstate it. I would say, you know, weekly is probably about right. We've already decided prayerfully what we're going to give away and therefore the decision becomes pretty easy at that point. Now, I, I want to be fair. Everybody's situation is totally unique. I get that. Everybody's situation is unique. What's true of every believer, though, is every believer has to wrestle with the principles of things that the Bible teaches, like regular giving, cheerful giving, first fruit giving. What does it mean to stand on the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to stand looking at an empty tomb of Jesus Christ that guarantees that you are going to have mansions in paradise? And then the believer is to come to their own spirit-guided conclusions. According to this passage, though, part of what my unique role as a public minister, though, is what Paul says to Timothy is, I'm supposed to command those who are rich in this present world to be rich in good deeds, to be generous, to share. That brings me to the final point, grabbing your gift of eternal life. Paul uses this phrase really twice in this section. He says it twice, and once in verse 12 and once in verse 19. He says, take hold of eternal life. Take hold of the life that is really life. Grab hold of life eternal. What does it mean to take hold of eternal life? You can only understand what some of these things mean by understanding what they don't mean. What they sound like they're saying, but they're not actually saying. He's not saying earn your salvation because you already have salvation. Because Jesus already died on Calvary thousands of years ago and took care of your salvation. So he's not saying earn your salvation. He's saying grab hold of your salvation. Your sins are already covered by the generous payment of God's son. Any, any stinginess you've had in your life, any fears about finances, any pride or greed or anything like that has already been overturned by the blank check that Jesus wrote with his perfect blood. There have been so many times in my life when I have been Honestly, such a self-focused miser, not only with my money, certainly with my money, maybe especially with my time uh, and with different gifts that I've been given, I've been so miserly and yet I am not concerned about my salvation one bit because it is already, all those sins are already forgiven by the generosity of Jesus. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, 
For your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become eternally rich. You are fully forgiven for any financial transgressions you have ever made, and it has not jeopardized your salvation one bit. The trick that he's talking about here, the key is, now grab hold of it. In other words, what is grabbing? Grabbing is experiencing something with your senses, feeling it. How do you grab hold of the certainty of your salvation? You can only sense it to the degree you're willing to let go of the other things in this life that you think give you control and certainty, which includes money. You see that? Paul isn't telling these people or us to earn our salvation. He's saying grab hold of the salvation, sense it that is already yours in Christ. He's saying one of the ways that you subjectively and emotionally sense the reality of your salvation is when you express it and you trust fall into the arms of God in the ways that he has taught you to, which includes your finances. Uh, I didn't mention it, I don't think, earlier, but in the letter that John Newton writes to that young minister, he references one of the Proverbs, Proverbs 19, 17. You could do a sermon on each of the Proverbs themselves, but this one is super interesting. It says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Think about this real carefully. Whoever is generous to the poor lends actually to the Lord and the Lord will repay that person for his deed. This is exactly, by the way, Jesus affirms this teaching in Matthew 25 when he's talking about the end times in giving a drink to somebody who's thirsty or clothes to somebody who's naked or, or that kind of thing. What does it mean? When you give out of your abundance to people in this lifetime who have needs, God perceives that as you lending him money. And the God who owns the entire universe says he is going to pay you back handsomely with interest, guaranteed. Do you believe that? Do you trust him? Don't be afraid. I know a lot of times it's not about greed and it's not about, it's about fear. Don't be afraid. Grab hold of the life that really is life. Put your treasure where I know your heart is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, all of us, at least many of us, struggle to be as generous as you call us to be in so many different ways. And if we're honest, uh, really a great deal of that comes primarily from fear. Forgive us. Make us confident and courageous. Help us trust and help us manage your treasures generously to the benefit of others and to the glory of your name. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.